I saw three electric scooters going down um, Tulane Avenue yesterday. Are those are those in? <laughs> Terrifying. Maybe. I've also seen like like small motorcycle things that I think people are like renting in the French Quarter or something. Those tripod things. Those. Are oh, you talking about the super low ones? Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's definitely some that are like. I mean, there's people who like who have their own clearly, but there's also like some rental system happening in the quarter. Mm. Definitely. It's the you wild can't west. Really see those? <laughs> no, they seem. Yeah, they seem so dangerous. Uh, I'm gonna get one though. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, last month, New Orleans Public Schools announced it would not follow the state's lead on new quarantine guidelines for students. We discuss what data is being used and how it gets collected in local schools. Angola prisoner Bobby Sneed is back in the news as his lawyers have filed a petition arguing he is being held unlawfully. The future of the jail facility known as Phase 3 is still uncertain as a committee can't reach consensus on whether to approve a necessary zoning change. And Mayor LaToya Cantrell has announced a plan to deputize civilian employees of some city departments to issue citations for certain quality of life municipal violations. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Good morning, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Good morning, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens Editor, Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. All right, Marta, coming up first in schools this week, the Lens published an explainer on how schools make decisions about COVID quarantines. It was heavily informed by your writing. What do we know and what don't we know about how they make decisions? So this is definitely a very complicated, intricate system that, um, you know, schools have guidance for and the guidance is public, but of course, in our New Orleans decentralized charter school system, each each charter network is making its own decision about who is a close contact. So, you know, it gets a it gets a little complicated there. Strictly speaking, you know, the CDC says if you've been with someone who's a known has a known case uh, within six feet for more than fifteen minutes, you're a close contact. Um, in schools, they drop that distance to three feet if people are wearing masks, which um, New Orleans public schools has a universal masking policy. Um, but you know, kids are kids, right? They're they're right. they're running around on the playground, or you know, they're on the bus with other kids. Um, you know, the district says it's worked to keep students in static groups at younger ages, but you know, I, I think there's still a lot of questions about how how contact tracing is being done. Even though it filled this great explainer, I think there's still unanswered questions. I think the the, the biggest one is we don't we don't have access to the data that they're looking at. Um, that's not published, um, so. And I think, I, you know, I think a lot of it is probably protected by various privacy laws. Um, so, so that's that's kind of our blind spot on this. And it's important this data because this is the data that they use not only to make, you know, sort of micro decisions like, uh, you know, who quarantines and who doesn't, but it's also it's it, this is also the data that's collected to sort of guide and inform. Uh, you know, macro public policy, statewide public policy, even and nationwide CDC guidelines for schools. The, the all of, you know all all the work that produces this data 
um, or a lot of it anyway, is being is being produced by you know individual school employees who are working sometimes within the parameters of you know sort of very strict policies and and other times working within sort of looser guidelines depending on the district, depending on the school. And for a while now, they've been saying that classroom transmission is rare. What data suggests that that's true? So that has been the line from the get go. I mean, I think I think the what we have to back that up is that we know that when kids are in school, especially in New Orleans public schools where masks are required, that if those mitigating factors are taking place like distancing and masking, that transmission will be lower. But like explicitly coming out and saying that, which people have been saying for a very long time, was possibly maybe an overreach. Like those numbers we saw at the beginning of this school year, they went up I don't know if exponentially is quite the word there, but they went up at, a, a, I would say, an alarming rate over those first three weeks of school. The way that Dr. Avegno explains the statement classroom transmission is rare is, you know, they take a look at transmissions that are happening with students and teachers who are at, you know, a single school, basically. And um, if the rate, you know, if the rate of transmission you know, among that school population doesn't, is not greater than the rate of general community transmission for that community. The, uh, this, the sort of assertion is that, well, this doesn't show that you're at any higher of a risk than you are in the general community. And you could have, you know, and, and, and as a result, you could have caught this from anywhere and not necessarily the classroom. They're just not, she says, she says that they're not seeing rates of transmission that you know in new orleans schools for example that are any higher than the general rate of transmission in the city of new orleans so the question for me that's that sort of remains a, a little murky um is how are they determining those rates of transmission within a school and whether one student got it from another student you know are they only counting so-called close contacts um if you know if two students come down with COVID in a single, you know, who were in a single classroom, but they're more than six feet apart. Is that, you know, is that counted as a potential in-class transmission or is that just, mm. you know, is that just thrown, you know, thrown out and chalked up to potential community transmission? Um, and the answer in New Orleans, at least, is, is you know, seems to be that they, they're encouraging people to kind of use their best judgment. There is a degree to which, you know, that they're really relying on seating charts uh, to, to make those determinations, but there are some charter schools that in, in New Orleans that have set their own policies um, that go beyond that, you know, that sort of close contact rule. Also, especially with uh, younger kids who may not necessarily have a desk seating chart and are kept within what are called static groups throughout the day, they'll often count the entire static group as a close quarantine because they, they don't have those seating charts. Oh, we tend to do things a little differently than other people in the state. What do we know about New Orleans' unique position and how this work is done? I mean, I, I think what you see in New Orleans is that, you know, we got we got hit hard early on in the pandemic. So there's been a very strong determination and, and very strong instinct from the district to have, you know, very tight policies requiring masking, right? Like that is not many districts are doing that in the state. I don't, I think we could probably potentially say that for the country. The high schools got together and required vaccines for any student doing extracurricular activities. Um, I think a lot of these 
uh, policies and requirements uh, you're not necessarily seeing other places, um, which I do think stems from our, you know, being some of the first, the first to experience the pandemic at a, at a you know, a very hyper local level. That's absolutely, this district is definitely um, unique or almost unique within Louisiana. The other issue that we, that makes it different is what we've touched on a couple times is that, you know, there, there is a district wide guidance um, that, you know, that, that's, charter schools are expected to follow, but individual charter schools are also making their own policies that can sometimes go above and beyond that guidance, which is not something you'll see in other school districts across the state because, you know, the rest of the state is, is made up of traditional top-down uh, direct-run schools. Okay. Right, and, and what Charles is saying, too, is that really limits our, our understanding of what these numbers might be, right? Right. Um, it's not a centralized district. Um, and the data, the data gathering isn't uniform. Mm. Right. And then they say in the data every week, you know, schools are required to report to us, but then they also say in the, the district also says in its release, you know, this is self-reported data. So right. it does raise different questions about how that data is gathered. It seems to be people are putting their best effort into it, but if it's gathered under different means, you know, what, what are we really seeing? Okay, so that giant flashing asterisk about this data, what does it say about COVID cases now in schools? What's the, what are the latest numbers? Well, they've uh, significantly dropped off um, after the hurricane, which that, you know, that's another question that we have and are trying to figure out if, if that had an impact somehow. Um, right now they're pretty low. I think there's there are about 50 this week. Um, it's declined in the last three weeks, um, which has obviously been good. And then the, the other difference that we're seeing is the quarantine numbers have drastically declined. So, you know, that's raised questions for us about, you know, did have, has the definition of close contact changed or more students just getting vaccinated because vaccinated students can return earlier than unvaccinated students if they have a close contact. So, so just more questions about that data gathering. And then, you know, another factor I know from one school leader is I think right before the storm, they had uh, like two cases in 80 quarantines or something like that. And, you know, 80 is a high number. And they were like, oh, we just don't have our seating charts set yet. So, you know, we're a little farther into the school year now. Maybe seating charts are set. And, you know, that's kind of helping drive these quarantine numbers down. But mm. but they are a lot lower than what we've seen in previous, um, previously with cases, positive cases. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusin, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. If you'd like the inside scoop on what stories we're pursuing, what events and initiatives are coming up, and to learn more about the people who report at The Lens, subscribe today to our newsletter at thelensnola.org slash newsletters. Thank you. Nick, in criminal justice, can you remind us of Bobby Sneed? He's back in the news. Remind everybody who he is and what's been going on with him. Yeah, Bobby Sneed is a, he's a 74-year-old prisoner at Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. He's been in prison for 47 years. Um, and... Last spring, he was granted parole uh, unanimously by the by the uh, Louisiana Parole Board, and they began preparing for his release. 
Um, but just days before his, his scheduled release, uh, he collapsed in the prison, was taken to a nearby hospital, and was treated for a variety of things. And it also, uh, at some point, was given a drug test. Uh, it's not entirely clear when um, that was administered. And the drug test ultimately came back positive for amphetamines and methamphetamines. Uh, Bobby Sneed, instead of being released on the day he was he was initially scheduled to, was was sent back to Angola, put into uh, administrative segregation, sort of a solitary confinement, awaiting a disciplinary hearing for a contraband write-up um, based on this uh, alleged positive drug test. So he remained in in prison for you know over a month after his after this this occurred. When he you know if it hadn't happened, he would have been been presumably released. And this is also despite the fact that prison policy dictates that, that you need to have a hearing on a, on a disciplinary write-up within seven days. So in, in any case, when this disciplinary hearing finally uh, took place in, in early May, Bobby Snead was acquitted of this contraband charge. Um, his lawyer presented evidence that there had been some changes in the reports that were, were written by prison guards at the time, um, some raised questions about whether or not the, the sample that was tested was even Bobby Sneed's. So the disciplinary, the, the prison's own disciplinary system acquitted Bobby Sneed. Despite that, the next day, or either the next day or a couple of days later, the parole board, one of the members of the parole board decided to independently there's some strip Bobby Sneed's parole. He was given a new parole hearing during which it was his, his parole was subsequently denied and and, and he uh, remains in in prison. Um, so that's you know sort of sort of the short version, maybe the long version of, of who Bobby Sneed is. That second hearing where they decided to revoke the the, the parole, or or actually, it's not even clear if I remember correctly what the vote was. Um, but but you know the net result was that he stayed in prison. Um, it seemed to hinge a lot on the you know so there was this question about whether the drug test was taken properly, whether it might have been a false positive from some medication, whether it was even his sample, you know, all these questions about the drug test. So there, there was a problem with the drug test. Um, and, and so they, they, they seemed to rely less on the drug test itself. And their decision seemed to hinge on, a, you know, an alleged statement uh, recorded by uh, uh, DOC personnel from a doctor in the hospital where they had taken him, where it, that he had supposedly told the doctor that he had taken various drugs. Mr. Sneed's lawyer later went and interviewed uh, some of the medical staff at the hospital who said, well, it couldn't have been him that said that to us because, you know, because he was in absolutely no shape to say anything when he came into the hospital. Mm. So if there were such a statement, it might have been speculation from a from a DOC staffer rather than something Bobby Sneed told uh, doctors himself. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I would just point out at the hearing in which his his parole was, there's some question about whether it was rescinded or revoked. And this is kind of is is in in his uh, in his lawsuit as well. Um, but in any case, when his parole was stripped at this hearing, there was really no adjudication of the evidence or pre- or presentation of the evidence. No witnesses were called. Um, it was clear that the parole board had, at that point had just made the decision based on this piece of alleged evidence. Um, you know, Bobby Snead's lawyer was was able to be there, but but really had no time to present an argument and really was not allowed to present an argument. Um, 
it was it was very much um, just a formality to to strip his parole. So you know you have the the one hearing in front of the disciplinary board where where things were actually discussed and presented and adjudicated, and he's found not guilty. And then you have this separate hearing where really nothing's able to to be presented or, or, or argued and his parole is stripped. Did it come out later too that one member had like unilaterally made this decision and then it kind of was presented later, which, you know, for all of us who cover boards, like it's not exactly how a board works. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the arguments in, in, in his lawsuit as well is what the, the parole board's policy is not entirely clear in terms of rescinding. So the, in, in the parole board's policy, they are able to rescind someone's parole. It's not entirely clear what that process is like. And Bobby Sneed's lawyers are arguing it's illegal under state law. So there's no no real way you can rescind someone's parole under state law. This is a policy that that shouldn't exist, they say. So the way yeah, the way it worked in practice with Bobby Sneed is he was a he was acquitted of these charges in the prison. One member of the parole board reached out to the executive director of the, of the parole board and said, I am moving to, to rescind his parole. So at that point, again, some of this stuff is unclear. At that point, it, it appears his parole was rescinded and then he was given a new parole hearing. Although at that hearing, I think some members of the parole board said that they were deciding whether to rescind his parole hmm. um, at the hearing. So that's all a little bit murky, um, and, and his lawsuit gets into some of that and kind of the procedural problems of that. It also argues that in order to rescind someone's parole based on, on the parole board's own policy, they need to receive notification by the secretary of the Department of Corrections, who's James LeBlanc, notifying them of a sort of a disciplinary infraction. Now, it would seem that if the prison's own disciplinary system acquitted Bobby Sneed, that notification wouldn't have come and there's doesn't seem to be any evidence that it did um so they're arguing that you know the parole board actually violated its own policy uh by by doing this um and there's a meetings question in there too isn't there yeah so then there's a there's another question of of they informed bobby snee's lawyers of of his new parole hearing on a friday informed them it was going to take place monday morning uh, parole parole board hearings are subject to open meetings laws. You need to provide the public with at least 24 hours of notice, not including weekends and also not including the day that you announce the hearing. So mm. that 24 hour notice period actually wouldn't have started until Monday morning when this hearing was scheduled. So they argued that, that, that it's in violation of that as well. There's kind of a whole range of procedural and, and legal issues that, that they're getting at, you know, and including it in the hearing itself, they, they argued that he was required more to process than he, than he was given. The overall argument seems to be that, that the parole board was upset about media coverage uh, of this case, and they, they kind of manipulated their own system in a, in a sort of rushed way, uh, doing whatever they could to rush through this process of keeping him in, in prison sort of as retaliation. This is something This is something that Mr. Sneed's lawyers have said in the past, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and that's in this suit too. That's that's accurate. They, they're bringing a, a First Amendment claim that, that he was vindictively stripped of his parole because he was speaking out in the media. And you know, one of the arguments is that if the parole board didn't need a disciplinary hearing to, to rescind or revoke his parole, then they could have done it 
you know, within the 48 or, you know, 43 days when, when Bobby Snead was awaiting his hearing, they didn't need to wait for it. Um, so why wait for him to be acquitted and then do it if they're not sort of retaliating for some of the, the media coverage around around this? Yeah, I mean, there were, you know, there were 30, there were, you know, 25 or 30 some odd days be- there before there was media coverage. And then this all seemed, there was media coverage from Nick, and this all seemed to happen very quickly after the meeting. What's the Department of Corrections saying now about the recent filing? Nothing. Um, you know, the Department of Corrections is sort of wiping its hands of it. They consider this a matter for the parole board. Initially, it was a petition filed just against the, it's a, it's a petition for habeas corpus, and it was initially filed against the warden of, of Angola. That petition was later amended to name the, the parole board um, and Francis Abbott, who's the executive director. Mm. Um, so the, the Department of Corrections is really just saying, you know, this isn't our, our problem. We had nothing to do with this uh, decision. So. Wow. Okay. Phase three, another update here, something happening outside of federal court. What's going on? Phase three is a, a, a jail facility, a controversial jail facility that's, that's uh, you know, kind of in the process, in the, in the pre-construction process. Uh, it would be used to, to house detainees in the jail with, with acute and, and subacute mental illness. There's a dispute happening in federal court. The judge has ordered the city to move forward with this building, despite the fact that they have have now come out against it and say they don't want to do it and it's a waste of money. But they are they are moving forward while they are appealing this decision from the judge in, in federal court. As part of uh, the process to move forward, they need to get approval from the city council on a zoning change that would allow them to build this facility. In order to get approval from the city council, they need to first go through the city planning commission and get a recommendation from them. Um, so this week, the city planning commission held a hearing where they they heard the proposal for, for the phase three zoning change, and uh, they basically declined to do anything. the The hearing was pretty interesting. I mean, the the whole thing is a little bit interesting because it's the city bringing this proposal to the city planning commission, and it's a proposal that they actually don't want to, right. to have. Right. Um, so, so they're in a kind of an awkward position. You know, I think the city planning commission, there's a ton of, of pressure and a ton of um, movement opposition to this, to this building. And I think as a policy matter, it seemed like the city planning commission was, was kind of on board with the city and on board with, with advocates who are opposed to it. And, don't necessarily think that, that it's the best idea, but there was some discussion over whether or not that, that if that was really the scope of the city planning commission's role was to was to consider the policy implications of a building or whether or not they should just strictly be focused on the zoning, the land use, yeah. and how it's going to affect you know things like traffic and congestion in the area, which they kind of you know their staff I think has had said it won't really affect this stuff um, from a, from a strict land use perspective. Yeah, well, and part, but probably part of the reason it won't affect that uh, the, uh, affect that sort of stuff is because you know there has been this mysterious patch of vacant land between two jail buildings for nearly a decade uh, because you know this is you know Sheriff Gusman has always always wanted to, to to have a new building. It was something that he originally um, or a third building. It's something that he originally. Uh, envisioned as being a much larger building, somewhere in the neighborhood of seven, six, six hundred to seven hundred and fifty beds. 
but yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is a patch of land that's ready to go for, for construction because it's just sitting there doing nothing. Um, there's even, there are even, you know, if you've ever been over there, there's even uh, half completed bridges from the kitchen warehouse building and the main jail building that just kind of hang in the air. And, and it seems appropriate to me that the staff um, is looking at this purely as a land use matter and not as a broader policy measure. And they made that clear in their report that that's what they were doing. It, it seems equally appropriate to me that the commissioners themselves, you know, that's more of a political position, are considering this from a broader policy standpoint. You know, some of them feel that they shouldn't, some they feel that they should. I think that's, you know, I think either position there seems equally valid to me. So yeah, I, I, it, it sounded like it was a very interesting meeting. I was just yeah. going to say that does have my favorite architectural element of a bridge to nowhere in that space. Exactly. If you drive by it, it is so evident. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, um, Nick, what happens next? So, it, this proposal gets passed along to the city council, and, and the city council will have to make the ultimate decision on this. And I think we'll we'll see where they come down on it because because they are stuck between a federal judge's orders and pressure from advocates and maybe their own personal opinions on, on whether or not this this should be built and the mayor's administration you know opposing it so it'll be really interesting and you know I should note that the city council also voted to pass along a, a plan for a retrofit which is sort of the alternative to phase three that's favored by the city and favored by by advocates that would retrofit a, a portion of the current jail to sort of provide the same services that that phase three was was going to provide so I don't know that has not been the staff, the state planning commission have not produced a report on that yet. And it's not entirely clear to me what the timeline is. So I don't know if the city council can somehow hold off and consider both proposals. Um, the other thing is, is that in, I believe next week, there is going to be a status conference with the federal judge in which the city council members are invited to attend. Um, so that could give us some you know, insight maybe into, into how this all is going to go down. And, you know, I think what the city council members would like is to broker some sort of compromise with, with the judge and with uh, some of the other parties in the consent decree. That seems like a pretty tall order to me. I don't, this, this argument has been, this dispute has been going on for a long time and a lot of suggested, you know, solutions have been put forward and rejected. And I think the other parties are very frustrated. So, We'll, we'll see. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Michael, this week, Mayor LaToya Cantrell outlined a proposal that would deputize certain city employees, like people who do property inspections, pest control, to, to issue tickets. Will you explain what it is she's proposing? Yeah, so the proposal um, centers around um, existing city law that allows the NOPD superintendent to deputize non-police civilians to exercise limited police powers. Um, so th there is some, you know, legal standing, like legal basis for, for what's being proposed here. Um, and the idea would be to give certain employees from uh, a, a few different departments the ability to write citations for municipal court for some local laws. So the, the departments we're talking about are the Department of Sanitation, the Department of Public Works, 
the New Orleans Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, the Mosquito Termite and Rodent Control Board, and the Ground Transportation Bureau. So the, the idea here, again, would be to give certain employees from those departments the ability to write citations for certain specified uh, city violations, city, city code violations. So what's the rationale? What, what is she saying? Why? Yeah, so I, I think the idea of what this is trying to achieve is, you know, let's say you have a, a uh, construction going on and the construction company puts the, their dump out in the street and blocks the street. Now, currently, the process might be that someone from the Department of Public Works receives a complaint. They go out there. They talk to whoever's working there, say, say you have to move this to, you know, someplace that's safe, someplace where traffic can move. Um, you know, and the idea is that there are some people who even after you warn them, even after you explain how you can fix the problem, they continue to be non-compliant. And then at that point, that employee from the Department of Public Works now has to go to the NOPD, try to get an officer involved to come down and write a ticket if it comes to that actual enforcement. So the idea here is allowing someone from the Department of Public Works to crack down on some of these violators with a little bit more teeth while at the same time not having to take away from the NOPD's resources, um, you know, which the city describes as, as being pretty stretched. Yeah, basically, they have to call a police officer because the way these particular um, ordinances are written into city law, they are adjudicated through the municipal court, which is a criminal court. Um, which means it falls under the police's jurisdiction. Uh, you know, there are others. There are other, you know, kind of code violations that are treated in an administrative manner. That includes like building code stuff. Um, you know, permit violations and um, also traffic camera tickets, where the police don't necessarily have to be involved or directly involved. But because these particular ones in the code are treated as municipal uh, municipal crimes, the police have to be involved right now. Uh, so, so what are some of the concerns that are being raised? I can think of a few. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the main concern is, you know, the, the, the laws, we, we link to it in the story, but, but this covers a really, really wide range of laws. Um, you know, yes, it covers some of the big ones like commercial construction can't just block the whole street, but it also includes, you know, things like, you know, your trash bin, for example, the lid has to be firmly tightly closed on the bin it can't be popping up over you know a bag that's overflowing so that would be a department of, of sanitation uh worker for example would be able to write a resident a ticket if their lid is you know just cracked open a bit or if you if you put your lawn trimmings into your trash can instead of next to your trash can that's another violation that would be covered by you know this proposal so i, I think the fear isn't as much on what's intended versus what could happen, you know, now that these powers are granted. Um, obviously, the intent, according to the administration, is not to go around and write a million tickets to a bunch of residents, you know, for very, very minor violation. Um, but nonetheless, this would authorize the city to do that if they want it. Um, you know, so, so again, I think the fear is, um, you know, is this going to be used, you know, to, to issue more citations and, and collect more fines? Um, and, and Councilwoman Helena Moreno also brought up the point that when you bring something into municipal court, uh, if you don't show up for court or if you don't pay the fine that, that issue, you can find 
and deeper and deeper legal trouble, deeper and deeper holes of, of debt that you owe to the court. So how these kind of issues can can uh, snowball into into bigger issues. So yeah, again, I think the the concern would be um, whether this turns into kind of trying to pick out you know low hanging fruit, low level violators, and, and issuing you know a, a lot more citations. Yeah, and I mean, and these, you know, these citations, as I mentioned, I mean, at least under a strict reading of, of city city law, and I'm, I'm, I doubt this actually occurs very often, but it, it's still possible. Um, you know, you get three of these violations or more, uh, you can theoretically do up to three months in jail. Mm -hmm. uh, there are potentially real criminal consequences. Uh, Councilwoman Moreno made made a, a you know a good a good point yesterday. I think that to alleviate these concerns. We really have to get tighter language into the ordinance itself. It seemed like it seemed like the city came into this with uh, with the intention of you know getting this law passed with with a fair amount of leeway as to how it could be interpreted, and then sort of writing into policy how it would actually be implemented rather than putting it into city law. Um, it sounded from Michael's story like uh, Councilwoman uh, Moreno was not satisfied with that and and she she wants to see real checks on this be written into the law itself before anyone is actually deputized um one part of this is that the nopd is going to have to formulize the set of rules for how employees are deputized how that would work what exactly their powers would be um so from the administration's perspective i think they're hoping to handle a lot of you know these these more specific issues on on that end of it rather than in the law itself i mean obviously if you are the administration itself more flexibility is better um you know you run the police department so the police department you know making these rules is obviously not it, it's is a process that you're comfortable with i think you know the question is how much of this should be codified into law can i ask you michael i was there any discussion about what sort of police type oversight functions there would be i mean would would the public integrity bureau have jurisdiction would this would the independent police monitor be able to look into what these uh, employees are doing uh, the consent decree monitors do we know anything about that yeah well so uh, an interesting point is that not a lot of those questions were asked uh, uh moreno councilwoman moreno did ask whether the NOPD's rules will have to be vetted by the federal consent decree monitor um, to which the, the city's representative, he didn't know for sure, but he said he, he didn't believe they had to. Um, so already that this isn't really falling under the consent decree. Um, again, I would imagine that exactly what the, uh, the accountability structure here is, is gonna be more written in those NOPD rules. Well, we'll see what happens with it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good week. All right. Bye, Carolyn. Thanks, Carolyn. Bye. Thanks, Carolyn. Bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.